This morning we continue in the book of Acts and we're going to begin to look at Acts chapter 15. This this message this morning is entitled the Jerusalem Council. We're going to spend uh, several Lord's Days, Lord willing, over the course of the next few weeks and course we have uh, we're into the the Christmas season but in time we're going to spend a little uh, a little more time on this chapter for it is indeed um, chapter 15 the centerpiece of the book it's actually the middle of the book of Acts but theologically it is the centerpiece as well it's the if you will the high watermark of the doctrine of the book of Acts so what we find here in Acts chapter 15 is the fact that this chapter kind of shines a spotlight on the theological development of the early church, the central reality, theological reality of what is going on in the early church. And that is that Christ is the promised Messiah, and that salvation is, by, is through grace in Christ alone and not of works. And we're going to see uh, the council here kind of flesh some of those things out in terms of uh, how... The Old Testament is viewed as type and shadow and then fulfilled in Christ and then lived out in every practical aspect of the Christian life now in the New Testament, or, or excuse me, New Covenant era. So we're in that transitional part of the Christian life, right, of the, of the Christian history. So there's a beautiful picture here, and this is central. This council has some of the grandest theology in it that we'll ever see in the scriptures. And so uh, this morning my goal is to try to give us a little overview this morning of what's transpired, to set a context for us as what has really transpired there in space and time at that council and kind of give us a little background and work us up to some big high watermark doctrinal points. And then again we're going to kind of flush some of this stuff out uh, as time goes on. So that's the goal this morning. We're going to kind of take a big chunk here, verses 1 through 32, and try to set a a context and a little bit of an overview and a summary even. And then uh, that'll be the goal for today. And then we'll continue to work through this chapter a little more uh, as, as time goes on. But what we have here is a controversy. A controversy takes place in this book. And that leads us to the central reality of major doctrinal issues in the Christian life. So I want you to hold that. And first I want you to see the gospel of grace disputed. And we see that in verses 1 through 5. Remember, some men came down from Judea. Now these are teachers from Judea. Judea, And they began teaching the brethren. The brethren there at Antioch. At Antioch, Syria, the sending a missionary church, the Gentile church that had sent Paul and Barnabas out on their first missionary journey, which they have returned and given report, right? So in this context, now men from Judea have come and they, have begin to, they began to teach there. And so there's a dispute. And what are they teaching? They say there in verse 1, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So now they're saying the Gentiles must put themselves under the law of Moses, marked by circumcision, or there is no salvation. And when Paul and Barnabas heard this in verse 2, well, they 
debated these men with great zeal and passion. They opposed them publicly. And it says the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go to Jerusalem and to the apostles and the elders concerning this issue. So there's a debate, and then they decide, okay, we're going to have to send our, our two missionaries and some leading men, some elders from the church, along with these teachers from Judea, and we're going back to the, to the mother church there in Jerusalem, and we're going to sell it with the leaders. So two churches are involved here, okay? That's who makes up the Jerusalem council. It's going to involve these two churches and only these two churches. The Gentile church there in, in Syrian Antioch and the mother church back in Jerusalem. Okay? Verse 3, Therefore, being sent away by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported, that, they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. There it is. Now they get back. This contingency from Antioch makes it back, and they run into another group there at Jerusalem, at the church in Jerusalem. Pharisees who have believed. In other words, that's Pharisees that have believed on Christ. And so the Pharisees that have believed on Christ there in Jerusalem also agree with these teachers that have made their way to Antioch from Judea, from the region. But they're all under the the umbrella of the church there in Jerusalem. These two groups, uh, teachers from Judea and now Pharisees there within the church in Jerusalem. Both of these groups are now saying that the Gentiles must mark themselves with circumcision or they cannot be saved. And the Pharisees there in Jerusalem also follow suit rightly and say, mark yourself with circumcision, which also means take up the law, the law of Moses, okay? So now we get the whole kit and caboodle. And there's, there's the issue, there's the matter. So we have the Pharisees there who so are believing on Christ, but also now uh, deem it necessary to continue to keep the Old Testament realities of circumcision and a keeping of the law in order to now be genuine followers of Christ and have salvation in Christ. They see Christ as the Messiah. They've accepted Jesus Christ as their promised Messiah. They're following Him as the Messiah, but they've also now brought back in the law and said, if you're really going to be a follower of Christ, if you're really going to be a genuine, saved follower of Christ that we understand to be our Messiah, you must be circumcised. And he must keep the law. After all, here's our promised Messiah. Now we've embraced him. He's come. All the promises of God are found in him. Now we must rightly worship him. And to rightly worship him, we must be circumcised and we must be keepers of the law. And so there's the background. There's the dispute. There's the dispute of the gospel of grace. And here's the theological reality. The promise of salvation is either brought about monogistically or synergistically. And there's no middle ground. That's the theological reality here. That's the theological context here. Grace is either free. God is either free 
and His sovereignty to deliver grace through faith alone, or God must have the aid of man through works. Here, specifically, works of the law, works of marking oneself off with circumcision and then following that with law-keeping. And that's the debate here at the Jerusalem Council. The freedom of the gospel of grace. Is it, does it belong solely to God alone to grant according to His sovereign will? Or must God work with man for grace and salvation to be applied to man? That's the issue. So the controversy here with the false teachers in Jerusalem arose, or excuse me, the false teachers from Judea, arose in Antioch. So they made their way to Antioch. And Paul and Barnabas uh, uh, kind of, uh, they hear them out, and then they begin to address them publicly. But they cannot dismiss them. Do you see that? Now, that might catch you uh, uh, by surprise. So let me just try to lay some groundwork here as well. It look, they spent a year with these Gentiles in Antioch, right out of the gate, right? Paul and Barnabas came in. Remember, Paul and Barnabas came in. They spent a year teaching them. They've brought, uh, they've raised up elders there. They've established elders in this uh, church here in Antioch. And this church has commissioned Paul and Barnabas to go on their first missionary journey into the Gentile world. They commissioned them to the grace of God. And now they've made that journey, which, by the way, was about two years in the making. So you're looking at three years here before they come back from the time they begin to teach this church. They poured their, their lives into this church, and now they've gone out as missionaries in about a three-year period, three-plus. They're back giving report of all the things that God has done with them in the Gentile region. And what we're looking at here is they make their way back to the, to the uh, council there at Jerusalem. In this context, of the first part of chapter 15, from the beginning of the church being established in Antioch in Syria, you're looking at about five to ten years here, roughly. Okay, so that's the time frame. So a lot of time has passed by before they make their way back to the Jerusalem Council. But these men have spent a long time there in Antioch, and now a couple of false teachers blow into town, and their main apostles here cannot dismiss these men. There's great debate. And they can't just dismiss them and get rid of them. And here's why. The challenge comes from men of Judea. And so when they come from Judea, they have authority. Why? Because they're connected to the mother church. They're connected to James, are they not? So they come with a level of authority. So they have a hearing with, Antioch, with the church there in Antioch. So there's not, they're not just able to be dismissed. Paul and Barnabas confront them, but the issue's not settled. So there's a big debate, but it's not settled. And so, therefore, they begin to decide we need to go back. We need to take our leadership, and we need to get to the church in Jerusalem, and we need to work this out together. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Now, had they been able to dismiss this and kind of uh, cut it off right there and stop it right there, that would have been wonderful. But that wasn't the case. These men had a level of authority because they came from the church there in Jerusalem. And so they're not able to just put it away right there on the spot. They're a delegation from James. And if you'll remember, a delegation from James had passed through this same region earlier. 
And Paul speaks of this directly in the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 2. We won't turn there, but do you recall these men of James? And they were from the circumcision party, and they were even able to persuade who? Peter and our brother Barnabas. And Paul had to confront them to their face, Peter and Barnabas, and say, hey, you're missing it here. You're living hypocritically. Well, those folks were men from James, and they're part of the the circumcision party. Now in this context, same group of folks, okay? I'm not saying the exact same men. Same party. Same theology. So these folks are cycling back through. They're from James. It's it's kind of like this, where James says, look, I've sent these folks out, but he didn't give them instruction to say what they were saying. So the circumcision uh, party came from Jerusalem. They made their way out. They're Christians. Probably a large number of them, or, or, or a significant number of them, are Pharisees. And they've made their way uh, out into these regions, and they're teaching this false doctrine. Now, they're holding to Christ. They're, uh, they, they're from James, but James is not going to agree with them on what they're teaching, what they've carried on. You ever had somebody kind of under your umbrella of influence, and, uh, but then they kind of get out at some point, and they're leaking out some ideology or some notions or some thoughts or some instructions from you that's not exactly from you. It's not what you intended them to say. It's kind of what's going on here. And folks like this have cycled through before, so much to the point that they could uh, persuade Barnabas and Peter at one time. So here, this is all in play here. They're men from James, but they didn't get, a, a, again, approval to teach what they've been teaching. They didn't get this kind of approval from James. So Paul and Barnabas sought the help of the leadership there in Jerusalem. The leadership of Antioch and the leadership of Jerusalem are going to be involved here. And so uh, the group from Antioch begins to journey back there. And we catch them in verse 3. And so a pretty cool thing happens there. It says, uh, <clears throat> when they're making their way back to Jerusalem, they were passing through Phoenicia and Samaria and describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and, were being, uh, and bringing great joy to all the brethren. So, hey, look, we've got to work this issue out. I mean, this is just a, a beautiful heart of men on fire for the glory of Christ. So this is a major theological issue. This is sobering stuff. And they need to make their journey back to Jerusalem and settle this thing rightly. But hey, since we have to travel and we're going through these regions, why don't we just take some time and communicate to the churches along the way all the glorious stuff that God has been doing among the Gentiles. It's just like this one long celebration all the way back, like this one victory party after another after another. So they're just rejoicing and praising God for what He's done uh, among the Gentiles with all these churches back along the way back, uh, on the way back to Jerusalem, and it's just one big, huge celebration. So this is a glorious little thing that Luke reports for us here on their way back. And in verse 4, they arrive in Jerusalem. And they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they reported all that God had done to them. So they received joyfully by the church there. But not everything is okay. There is 
a matter of business that has to be addressed. There's a major theological issue here. And so we find out there in verse 5, we meet the sect of the Pharisees who believe in Christ, but also the necessity of circumcision. And when circumcision comes in, the keeping of the law comes in. So they stand up and say, no, it's necessary for them to be circumcised, them being the Gentiles, and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Well, there it is. So these Christian Pharisees who accept the claims of Christ, but they have this standard now. Circumcision. And again, with circumcision comes the keeping of the law. You can't, those two are inextricably linked. You can't separate the two. And Paul was well aware of this. So the theological battle will take place and it must be sorted out. And it's going to be done so by the leadership here. The false teachers were teaching that without circumcision, one cannot be saved. And if one accepts that, accepts circumcision, then one accepts, or he or she accepts, the embracing of keeping the law. And Paul knew this all too well. Paul was very clear on this. And I point you to Galatians 5, 2, and 4. Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. Listen to the language of Paul here. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. Right there it is. Paul knew exactly where they were going. You introduce circumcision, you have to introduce the keeping of the law. You have been severed from Christ, if this is the case. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. And Paul nails it right there in Galatians. He's actually actually in Galatians there reporting back to this very council here when they had to work this stuff out initially. And that's the heart of the matter. If you take up this works, then you have severed yourself from Christ. You're either justified by your uh, circumcision and then your capacity to keep the law or you're justified by Christ alone. The two cannot meet and work together. And Paul nails it right there in Galatians. So that brings us to the gospel of grace distinguished. The gospel of grace distinguished. And we find that addressed there in verses 6 through 21. So look with me there in verse 6, and we'll read down through verse 12. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. So we've got the two churches gathered here in Jerusalem, and they're going to address the issue. In verse 7, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of these disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through grace, 
by uh, the grace of the Lord of the Lord Jesus in the same way as uh, as they also are. And then in verse 12 it says all the people kept silent and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So here's the gospel of grace distinguished. God pours out salvation on the Gentiles through faith. Through faith in Jesus Christ alone, devoid of the covenant of circumcision and commitment to the keeping of the law of Moses. Period. Amen. Forever and ever until Christ returns for His people. That's a clear doctrinal distinctive. Notice there the little term debate. That's a, that's a nice little term that we find in verse 7. So there's a debate. They listened. These two groups got together and they listened to these false teachers. They debated about it. They addressed the issues. So it's not the, the, the um, censoring, the, the um, council culture that we live in today. It's, it's not the issue. What they're doing is handling this the right way. I want you to see that up front. This little, this little term debate is a beautiful thing that we see here. They talked about this. They got together and they addressed this seriously like adults with soberness and fairness and a deference uh, uh, to, to one another and wisdom and clarity. And it's important that we see that. They wanted to understand the opposing view. They wanted to understand these Pharisees and these false teachers from Judea. Where are they missing it? How, what are they not understanding? How is this not coming together for them? These are men who are professing Christ. And the brethren here are absolutely in the right to head this thing off. They, they had to sniff this thing out and deal with it immediately, publicly, and address it and oppose it and put it to death. But they do it the right way. They're concerned about these men. They listen to them. They want to understand where they're not getting it. And so they hear them out. They listen. They strive to understand their view. The issue stated and how they address it. Now again, they want to expose it publicly. That's necessary. But they do so with respect and gentleness. It's an opportunity to minister. So for us, it's a simple win here as we think about application, there's always an opportunity to minister. Be gentle. Be patient. Be wise. Be respectful. Try to understand the opposing view. Try to understand where they're coming from. And be clear on the gospel. Proverbs fifteen twenty eight says this, The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. My, what a proverb for our culture at this time. My, what a proverb for God's people. The heart of the the righteous ponder how to answer. Proverbs 18, 13. He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. They listened. How simple it is. What a simple little reality about how hard it is for us to follow through. Oh, we want to snap. We want to bite back quickly. Oh, we want to, to cut the legs right out from under folks and just, and just uh, it's the drop the mic moment. That's the thing, right? Oh, how sad and pitiful for a culture. 
of all people, we as Christians must listen and be respectful and calm and patient and see the big picture all the way through and minister, a heart to minister in these uh, uh, pressing times where, the, where, where, where there's opposing views and you've, it, it seems uncomfortable and, and uh, you, it's either, it's either the, the, the fight or flight. But there's a right way to stand and do the right thing and, and demonstrate the gospel appropriately and still take a firm stand against all opposition. So why are these false teachers so enamored with circumcision anyway? Isn't that, is it hard for you to understand? We're looking at a, mostly a Gentile community right here at Word of Grace in terms of our heritage, um, or at least immediate heritage. So why is, it, why is it so difficult for them to just get beyond this notion of circumcision? You ever think about that? Is that problematic for you? Uh, here's a chance where maybe I can try to help a little bit. So, okay, let's start with this. The, the rite of circumcision has been put away in the New Testament. It's been put away in the New Covenant, right? Are we good there? I mean, I, we could just, at another time, another context, we can just go, we can just pull up verse after verse after verse. So I don't want to just throw it out there without, without uh, validation, but maybe at another time and at a smaller uh, setting when we get together, we can look at this. But, but that's put away. The rite of circumcision is done with. The New Covenant puts it away. So we don't see that reality in the New Testament. So in what sense is uh, circumcision everlasting? That's what we have to ask. Because that's the language we get in the Old Testament. That's the hang-up for these, uh, 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 these Jewish believers here. Or, or these, or these uh, men that are coming, they're professing Christ, they recognize Him as the Messiah. But they've got this hang-up of works. Which is going, as Paul said, it's going to sever them from Christ. There's no genuine salvation there. And they're saying the exact opposite. They're saying, no, there's no genuine salvation unless you take up these works. So we're looking at two dynamic opposing poles. Why? Well, because the Old Testament is, is, uh, has a, quite a bit of language like this. And here's a very straightforward example. Genesis 17:13. And this is God speaking about His covenant of circumcision. And He refers to it this way. My covenant uh, is to be in your flesh as an everlasting covenant. Now He's speaking about the covenant of circumcision. And He says it's an everlasting covenant. Now that's pretty straightforward language, isn't it? So we have to ask now ourselves as we're looking at, at this reality of Christ and salvation come through Christ alone by faith. And we see this in the new covenant. Well now, how... Is circumcision an everlasting covenant? That's a good question for it, isn't it? That's a really good question for us. How is it? Well, it is that. You're right. So now how do we apply that? How do we understand that? And how do we communicate that? Well, it's absolutely the circumcision of the heart because the right of circumcision has, if you will, fruit. It produces fruit. Now that's a concept we can hang on to, right? Because as Christians, our life is supposed to produce spiritual fruit. Well, the rite of circumcision, although it's been put away in the New Covenant, it still produces fruit, okay? Circumcision is not everlasting in terms of the rite. We see that it's put away clearly in the New Testament. But the fruit of circumcision is everlasting, okay? That's what I want you to hold on to. The covenant of circumcision 
is simply fulfilled in Christ. It's just that simple. Now let's try to fill that out a little bit. Christ is the everlasting high priest who offers the everlasting atoning sacrifice for his people. He's both in one. He's our Savior and Redeemer. And Christ is everlasting. His salvation is everlasting. And that reality is the everlasting fruit of the right of circumcision. The right itself is not everlasting. The fruit of the covenant of circumcision is everlasting. And it's fulfilled in Christ alone. Amen? Can you see that picture? This is very important for us theologically. Do you understand? Are you following me there? The Messiah came from Israel. Israel is that seed through which the flower of the Messiah has has burst forth. The Messiah came from Israel. And Christianity flows from Christ. And Christianity is eternal in its reality. So what I'm saying to you, if you're sitting here as a blood bar, you're listening through Zoom as a blood follower of Jesus Christ, that is an eternal reality in your life. It's eternal because of Christ. And Christ is the promised Messiah of Israel in space and time that God created. And the right of the covenant of circumcision has fruit. That fruit is Christ. Christ is a centerpiece of Christianity. And your Christian life is eternal because of Christ alone. And that is salvation by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. Amen? That's the reality of the everlasting nature of the right of circumcision. The right is put away the fruit of the right remains forever in Christ. Christ is the everlasting covenant. Do you see that? He is the everlasting covenant. The promised Messiah of Israel brought forth in space and time out of the nation of Israel to be the Savior of the nations. He is that everlasting covenant. He fulfills the covenant of circumcision. So next there, we see Peter speak about it. And so he stands, and he kind of gives a, a little um, rundown of, of what's happened in his ministry. They're beginning at Pentecost and how God has used him to now carry the gospel to the Gentile world. And so he says there, look, um, brethren, in verse 7, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And then he goes on. And he says uh, in verse 8, And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did also to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now there it is. So, so Paul kind of, excuse me, Peter kind of takes them back there and just speaks to them about his calling as an apostle of Christ. And his role and what God has done with him in his ministry. And so he just kind of runs through it a little bit there. And he speaks to them. He first reminds them of his own, rea- the own, his own ministry, the reality of that. We find that there in Acts 10 and 11, right? So everything, if we went back and looked at the, those two chapters, Acts 10 and 11, he just kind of just gives a little rendition there. This is what happened. This is how God used me among the Gentiles. And he says to us very clearly, God directed Peter. He says, God directed me. God directed me to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. 
So remember the vision there? When God gave him the vision? And he clearly brings him to Cornelius and then he begins to preach the gospel to the Gentiles? That's what he's saying. This is what happened. And what is he, then where does he go? He says, Once I preached the gospel to the Gentiles, the Spirit of God fell on them. Now, what's he talking about? He says he fell on them just like he did on us at Pentecost. So what's he saying? What's the evidence? He's giving an, an evidentiary testimony here. You know how the Spirit of God fell on us at Pentecost? And the reality of, of, of salvation in Christ alone and the, and the fullness of the Holy Spirit now indwelling His people was marked off by signs and wonders here again in the apostolic age. Again, still the New Testament is open, the canon is open. This is the apostolic age. And that truth of the gospel of Christ alone, that marking off of the new covenant was with signs and wonders, right? So what happened when He started preaching to the Gentiles? What did the Spirit of God do there? He indwelled them just like He did us. The Spirit of God that was promised in salvation to the Jews is the same Spirit of God that was given in salvation to the Gentiles. Same salvation, same God, same Spirit. How do we mark that off? Signs and wonders. Signs and wonders occurred among the Gentiles just like it did with us. This is what happened. The same Spirit that indwells us in salvation, the, the promised salvation in Christ is the same Spirit that indwells them. Why? Because it's the same salvation. It's God saving both Jews and Gentiles the exact same way. Through Christ. And how does he say it here? Through Christ, by faith, he cleansed their hearts by faith, not taking up circumcision and the keeping of the law, but by faith. So the sign gifts were given to the Gentiles as well, and the Spirit fell, proving the Spirit of God fell upon them as well. They heard by faith and they believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, This is what happened. And circumcision. And the law-keeping was not necessary for their salvation. That's his point. He, uh, he's saying, here's what happened. And so uh, uh, by telling them what happened, he's, he's implying to them what did not happen. This is what happened. They were saved by hearing. They heard the gospel and they were saved by faith. And here's what didn't happen in that scenario. The Spirit fell upon them. And signs and wonders were, were given as evidence of that reality. But here's what didn't happen. They didn't have to be circumcised and they didn't have to keep the law. None of that happened. Circumcision and law keeping is not in the picture. What did happen is the Spirit of God fell upon them when they heard the gospel by faith. You see Peter's point? That's not, he's not a bad apologist here, is he? So he just tells him, gives him a little, a little history of what transpired in his experience as a minister of the gospel of grace. So he says, God made no distinction between the two of us. Nothing. There's no distinction. Same God, same salvation, same spirit. Same evidence of salvation. There in the apostolic age, uh, signs and wonders. But then we get to verse 10 and he says, <clears throat> he asks a question here and it's a very good question. This is a question we need to take up together as we're thinking through this. How therefore... Uh, excuse me, now therefore, why do you put God to the test? Now that's a pretty strong 
question right there. Why do you be, when somebody comes to you and says, you know, brother, why do you put God to the test? That gets your attention, doesn't it? That's, that's something we don't really want to do routinely. It's not something we want to be about, putting God to the test. But this is, how he, this is how he lays forth the question. Why do you put God to the test? How? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. So he's saying to these uh, teachers from Judea and these Pharisees, uh, uh, believing Pharisees uh, there in Jerusalem, this, this group that's saying the Gentiles need to take up circumcision in the law. He's saying to them, you're putting a yoke on them. Putting a circumcision in the, in, in the law is a yoke. And then he asked them, why would you do this? To do this is to test God or to tempt God. For what? To, towards what? To tempt God to what? To bring His wrath to bear upon you. What do you tempt God to do? How does man tempt God? How do we test God? What's, that always, what's always going to be addressed when we're accused or, or guilty of tempting or testing God? Testing Him towards what? Patting us on the back for how righteous we've been? No. Testing Him towards judgment and wrath. So Peter just lays it out here. This is, this is a, a, an issue of spiritual life or spiritual death. This, there's no middle ground here. And so he just lays it out. Look, he says to these men, he says to the counselor, he, he gives testimony there, what God has done. And then he says, look, by requiring them to take up circumcision in the law for salvation, you are tempting God. You're tempting God to pour out his wrath upon you. You are dead wrong. That's what he's saying. You are wrong. You are wrong on a matter of salvation, which is life and death. You are opposing God's will. You have missed the reality of salvation in Christ alone. And to defy that is to bring down condemnation upon yourself. You're placing a yoke upon these men that no one can bear. Our forefathers couldn't bear it. We couldn't bear it. And they're not going to be able to bear it. No one can bear it. Because it's not a means that it's not a means through which man can be saved. So he says to them, God didn't put a yoke on these Gentiles. He saved them by faith in Christ. Therefore, you're showing contempt for God by forcing them to bear this yoke. Yes. Is the law to be loved? Is that true? Because here Paul, Peter's calling it a yoke. And he's saying the men that try to bring it to bear on, on themselves or others actually is in contempt of God, mm-hmm. pleading for his wrath. So now we're a confessional church. And we have this crazy notion that the law still applies. And the moral law is abiding eternally. The law of God is good. And the moral law is eternally abiding. We say the law is good. So how do we rectify this? Is the law of God good or is it a yoke? Confessional brethren, I got a good. It is good. It's always good. It's right. 
It's perfect. It's glorious. When we understand it rightly. Amen? When we understand it rightly. So let's look at that. Circumcision in the law is meant to be a big, huge, flashing, neon sign pointing to Christ. That's when the law is seen rightly. That's where the law becomes good and right and precious. And we are to cherish it because we are to see it rightly as a sign pointing to Christ. Pictured by type and shadow all throughout the Old Testament. Type and shadow pointing to Christ alone. And we are not to see it as a stairway through which mankind can climb their way to heaven. When we see the law as a stairway through which man must find a way to slog his way up to heaven, we see the law and circumcision wrongly. And it's a yoke. It's a repressive, deadly yoke. Do you understand the difference? This is vital for our Christian life. It's a sign, a gigantic neon sign. It's not a stairway. To see circumcision and the law as a stairway after Christ is a deadly yoke. To see it as a sign is a glorious, beautiful reality. So now, if we were going to travel up to Limbo Gorge and you pull up a website that tells you about Limbo Gorge and all the different trails that you can traverse there and all the, the, the wonder of, of God's beauty that you can see there and all the things that you can do and, and you take your phone and you, you punch in a, a route from here to get up to Linville Gorge and you drive up to Linville Gorge and you get there and you have your website out in front of you that tells you all about Linville Gorge and how wonderful it is, how marvelous it is. You might even have some pictures of it. And Linville Gorge itself is sitting right out there and you're parked in your vehicle. And Linville Gorge in all its splendor and all its glory and all its majesty is just waiting for you to go out and partake of it and traverse it and all its grandeur. And you choose to sit in your car and look at your website that tells you about Limble Gorge. You have missed the reality of Linville Gorge. You're not going to do that, are you? It's Christmas time. When you get out your little Christmas-colored wrappings of your Reese's Pieces, you're going to hold the wrapping, and it's going to look nice to you, right? No, 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 nice. I like this. You're going to hold it, it's going to look nice to you. Are you going to hold it and you're going to marvel at the wrapping? Or maybe you'll even open it up and you're like, wow, look at the wonderful dark chocolate inside that wrapping. And if you just leave it there, you're not going to experience the goodness and lusciousness of a Reese's Pieces because you can't get to the peanut butter middle. You're not going to do that. You're just going to look at it and marvel, are you? You're going to partake of your Reese's Pieces, are you not? And the same is true in salvation in Christ alone. We partake of Christ 
alone. We don't partake of the neon sign pointing to Christ. We don't strive to climb, to slog our way up the stairway to heaven in and of our own capacity, which is a yoke that no man can break. No, we partake of the sign rightly. Treasure it, love it, uh, uh, praise God for it because it points us to our hope, which is Christ alone. And there we partake fully. It's type and shadow and it's salvation free and full in Christ alone or its works. There is no in-between. So God has made covenant with Israel to prepare for the coming of Christ. And that's what these Pharisees missed. They didn't understand the purpose of Israel. The purpose of Israel and the covenant that God has made with Israel is to prepare the world for the coming of Christ. It's type and shadow, type and shadow. So Peter speaks there about that reality and then in verse, uh, and then he gives kind of a, a, a personal confession there, a, a little beautiful thing there in verse 11. He says, this is what we believe. We believe that we are saved through grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way they're saved also. And then in verse 12, uh, uh, Peter kind of gives the floor there to Paul and Barnabas. So it says, uh, um, Barnabas and Paul reverses the order. Uh, Paul will be the lead apostle, cause I, so I get used to saying Paul and Barnabas. But here, Barnabas actually had more authority than Paul there in Jerusalem. So he was a, a, a leading teacher there and more founded in Jerusalem than Paul actually was, if you remember, historically. So Barnabas actually speaks here. He kind of takes the front uh, uh, position of, of speaker here, which as they go on the mission into the Gentile world, they'll reverse. But uh, that's why, if you're just wondering, that's why the switch. Uh, Barnabas is actually a little more influential back in Jerusalem at this point. And so they're just telling about all the signs and wonders that God has done through them, the Gentiles. And then James will come up. And James will speak. And so he takes his turn, and James com- completely supports Peter and Barnabas and Paul. And he says that the Gentiles, you know, as a matter of fact, the Gentiles being saved as Gentiles without the yoke of circumcision or the keeping of the law was actually predicted in the Old Testament. And so he runs through that there beginning in verse 16. So look there with me. He says, after these things, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Now he pulls that, uh, he kind of combines Amos chapter 9 verse 11 and Jeremiah chapter 12 verse 15. He kind of combines those two together and to make his point here. So, but he goes back to the Old Testament. He says, look, the Old Testament has told us all along that God is going to save the Gent- uh, a number of Gentiles. His people come from among Jews and Gentiles. He's going to save those from among the Jewish nation and from among the Gentile world. He said this has always been true. This has always been the case. And then he gives a little warning. He warns against the Gentiles falling prey to scandalous practices that are common among these Gentile nations. So he goes on there. And he says, therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble uh, those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them. So he's going to send a letter here. He's going to send a couple guys back with uh, the brethren who have come from Antioch. They're going to send a couple of uh, leaders back with them. Okay? 
Judas and Silas are going to go back. They're going to deliver this letter. And then it says they're going to preach to them and encourage them. And a very lengthy sermon. Can I hear everyone say amen from Word of Grace? You get a lengthy sermon. Okay? So but this is what he says. Don't trouble them, but give them a few, re- a, a, a few um, recommendations for us. And remember, we're thinking about unifying Jews and Gentiles in the faith here. So he said, let's just give them a little word of wisdom here. Uh, we're not going to, you know, don't burden them. The yoke of the law and circumcision is not in play here. They're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, like everybody else, Jew and Gentile. But here, give them this. We're going to write a letter and we're going to say, look, look, you need to abstain from things uh, contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. So that seems a little strange to us. But here's all that, 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 that James is saying. Look, as you take this letter back and we say, man, this is, this is not circumcision of the law. It's not necessary. It's salvation in Christ alone through faith. But here's some things that, you, you know, that, that might be practiced in your culture that you need to stay away from. For your good, for your spiritual good, and the good of not being offensive to your brethren. Because, by the way, uh, again, we're looking for opportunities to minister, right? What's still happening in the Jewish world? Sacrifice is still happening, isn't it? Sacrifice is still going on. There's still Jewish folks that are bound under the law. And there's still people that are coming to Christ, and they still have a hang-up with circumcision in the law. There's a major missionary mission field here. And we need to be sensitive to these issues. Now, one, you need to stay away from things that, that, that are, 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 you know, anyway related to, to the taking up of idols in your culture. And you need to stay away from fornication, which was, you know, common practice in, in the, uh, these pagan cultures. So you need to be aware of this. Do, you know, do well. Be wise. Live out your Christian life, life wisely. But, but um, the sacrifices, the, the blood, that is, uh, things that are strangled, those are things that are directly le- related to issues that might offend Jewish brethren or possible uh, Jewish converts that would be there in their Gentile communities, okay? Do you see that? So they're just going to be sensitive to that and, and, and watch these things that you might fall prey to that are really scandalous for genuine Christians, but it's common practice in your culture. Now, he'll go on and say, look, the law of Moses is right there in the synagogues for the Jewish folks around you, and they may not be as susceptible to these things as you are. So they're just giving them a little heads up here, a little warning about things they might fall prey to and to be on guard against. Other than that, you're free in Christ. You have liberty in Christ. Just live out your liberty wisely. Now, and the same is true for us today. We, um, now, today, can you have a steak that's, you know, not, not, maybe not fully well done? You can. Okay? That's not an issue here of blood. But at that point, uh, they really wanted to be sensitive to these things, particularly to be sensitive to their Jewish brethren. So if you like your steak, medium rare, have at it. It's, it's, it's not uh, sinful, so maybe I can clear that up for you. <clears throat> but then in verse 22 to 32, we see the gospel of grace fully defended here. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And of course, this is uh, Judas and Silas that we've just mentioned. And these were leading men among the brethren. And they sent them with this letter. And the apostles and the brethren uh, who are elders 
um, to the brethren of Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles. Greetings. Since we have heard that some of, uh, some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seems good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to, set, uh, to, to send to you um, with our brethren, with our beloved brethren, Barnabas and Paul. Now, right there, James goes back and he points out uh, the men of the, of, the, of the circumcision party. Those men have gone before. That's exactly who he's talking about here. Do you see that? He says, we're going to send you this letter, and we're going to send a couple of our brothers with Paul and Barnabas back to encourage you with this letter. And why? We've gotten together, and we've hashed this thing out. But here's what we heard in verse 24. We heard that some of our number, now that's men from James, some of our number to whom we gave no instruction. They started this stuff in Antioch earlier, even persuading Peter and Barnabas for a time, for a little season where they just kind of, you know, just their brains just dropped out of the side of their head for a moment. Look, these folks, we didn't give them that instruction. We didn't tell them to teach that. We did send them. They're from James. But they started teaching something that, that we disagree with. And so we're, since we're concerned about that, since we want to try to set the record straight here, we see that they've unsettled your souls. This stuff is still going on. It seemed good to us having become one mind, so they've settled this. The churches have gotten together and they've addressed this issue. And we said, we're one mind now. Salvation is through Christ alone, by faith alone. There's no need for circumcision of the law. It doesn't apply. And so we're setting the record straight with you. And we select these men and we send them with Barnabas and Paul. Now these men, he recommends them to them. He says they've risked their lives for the name of Christ. And therefore we have sent Judas and Silas. Uh, who themselves will also report the same thing by word of mouth. So we're giving you this letter for them to read, and then they're going to they're gonna spend some time with you. And their lives are going to back it up. It says, For it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. And he's going to go back over it again. Here's just, here, we're just going to leave you with this. Be wise. Be liberal within your Christianity. Be wise. Abstain from things sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. Walk circumspectly and be sensitive to your Jewish brethren. That's kind of in this, in this language here, implied. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. So when they had sent, away, uh, sent them away, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas also being prophets themselves encouraged and strengthened the brethren there with a lengthy message. And so what's happened here? So they delivered the letter. They straightened things out. They said we're of one mind. Circumcision in the law is not necessary for salvation. And these men that were, you know, touting this false teaching has to be addressed. And we did it publicly. And it didn't come from James. We sent them, but they're teaching something that we don't support. So we're, 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 we're you know, making the record straight here. And so then the, men's encourage, the men encouraged him, encouraged them. And they were encouraged. Why? Why were they encouraged by the lengthy message? They were encouraged because God had prior cleansed their hearts by faith. That's why they were encouraged. God had cleansed their hearts by faith. They'd been saved. 
by entrusting themselves to Christ. The empty hand of faith receiving what Christ has done on their behalf. Faith placing themselves in the hands of Christ. They believed and they were saved. That's why they now can be encouraged. That's why they now are rejoicing. That's why now these two uh, 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 men from, from Jerusalem are encouraging their hearts because they have been saved by faith. They have been given, they have been forgiven of their sin and granted a new love. They hate the old love, which is their sin, and they repent of it. And now these men can encourage their hearts. They have been given the Holy Spirit and they have been forgiven of sin. So here's the question. Do you know the cleansing of your heart by faith? There is no other hope of salvation. And if you're here and you're caught up in being a good churchgoer, that's pharisaical. Don't remain a Pharisee. Don't see the glory of Christ and hang on to your works. Extend the hand of faith and believe in Christ alone who forgives you of your sin and then grants you a new love. To love righteousness. To love your Savior. To hate your sin. To repent of it. And to long to live righteously for your Savior. To the glory of your God. That's the great beauty of the gospel. That's the great centerpiece of this chapter. That's the reality of the hope that we have in Christ. And that's what we'll take up, Lord willing, as we meet again in the next few weeks. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for our time here. We thank you for this text. Um, We ask that you would help us to know and love you. We thank you and praise you for the hope that is offered in Christ alone, that you are a God who is free to grant salvation, the promise of salvation that comes through your Son, Jesus Christ, and comes through faith alone. We thank you that um, you have given us all the Old Testament to point to our great Savior in type and shadow and that you have fulfilled it in your Son, Jesus Christ, and that now our hope rests in Him alone. Thank you for such a Savior. Thank you for such a glorious hope. Thank you that a God would lavish uh, sinners like us with such amazing grace. Your love for sinners, how glorious you are. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.